Hello, everybody. Welcome to a French Village podcast. I am here with my good friend, Ben Wittes, uh, and we are talking about episodes seven and eight of the French Village. Hey, Ben, how you doing? Good. I, I like the that episodes seven and eight involve gambling and prostitution and spy rings. It's a very kind of Vegas uh, pair of episodes. It is true. If you know anything from the Secret Podcast, it's that I do love a good, uh, good gambling ring. Love, love to gamble myself, uh, both, uh, both on life, but also just in casinos. Also, can I just say that I have decided now, after eight episodes, who my favorite character in this is, and it's not even close. Tell me, Gustave, the little seven-year-old <laughs> kid is uh, the most sensible and reasonable, uh, uh, and he's uh, he's just my, my fave. Yeah, Gustav. Uh, the, the, we, we haven't talked about him as much, but there's, like, uh, scenes in the earlier episodes where he is, you know, in the dunce cap. Uh, amazing. Uh, yes, he is, uh, he's, and he's adorable. Um, and, and, and this episode... I mean, we can kind of jump right into it. Gustav plays a bigger role in these episodes, uh, both in plot movement as well as kind of developing him uh, as a character. Uh, but in the first episode, uh, well, not, but in episode seven, um, Marchetti, always um, sort of scheming, agrees to take Gustav to um, a toy fair uh, where they are selling... Uh, the toys uh, for a fundraiser, but it becomes clear uh, that the toys are actually that are being sold are from families that have had to flee. Um, and and so Marchetti sort of volunteers when he hears that the that the toy fair is going to be next to the post office. He wants to he offers to take Gustav to this thing. And uh, and he pulls a little maneuver where after he buys him this like Rolly Duck thing that has the the name Roland carved in it, the the previous little boy owner, I assume. Um, he he pretends to to tie his shoe while uh, while Suzanne is walking out of the post office building, uh, and uh, and Marchetti kind of stares and 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 Gustav recognizing her does uh exactly what he was told to do which is that he volunteers to Marchetti that he does not know that woman yeah never seen her before never seen her before what do you think what do you what, what do you think about Gustav's uh attempt here well I mean you know that when you entrust a seven-year-old to not tell something the seven-year-old is going to, in total good faith, figure out a way to spill the beans. And, um, you know, I actually thought that moment was a little bit clumsily done, um, uh, just in the sense that Gustav kind of volunteers that he doesn't know her apropos of nothing, as in, you see that woman over there? I've never met her before. And I don't, I don't think that that's quite the way it would happen, but I do think the spirit of it is right, that 
no seven-year-old is going to hold a secret like that very effectively, and a smart guy like Marchetti is going to get it out of him one way or another. Um, and um, and I I do think the fact that they were they are kind of adorably able to per, per, portray it as he actually thinks he's done a good job and, you know, made sure everybody knows that he has never met her before um, is, was pretty cute. Um, it, it continues into the next episode where he proudly informs his father that he kept the secret and told the cops that he didn't know her. Um, but I, I, I don't, so it's adorable because the kid is adorable um uh but but, I, but but serious in its implications though like oh yeah had real... she, she gets arrested and uh we don't know what's happened to her yet and the reason the reason that we he's able to tell his dad right is that um through this this two episode arc we see uh you know remember at the end of our last podcast we we knew that marcel uh was getting arrested um we weren't sure where he was going turns out he's going to the the local prison where his brother can see him um they give us the timeline that he's there for three months um but when he he it, it appears uh based on what we've just seen but based on the action of these two episodes that gustav accidentally diming out Suzanne leads to Suzanne's arrest and to the early release of Marcel because they now know that he was not uh, the single perpetrator. And so uh, he's able to get out of prison, which, and and I will say it was a nice moment when Gustav tells his dad, like, I did the right, I did this well, you know, I told him I didn't know her. And Marcel immediately knows what's happened. Like he kind of puts it together, but he, he also knows that his son did his best and was trying to do the right thing. And he kind of gives him a, a big hug and it's a nice moment. It's a nice moment in a, in a series of not so nice moments yes. for Marcel. Cause Marcel has gotten out of jail and, uh, immediately picks a needless fight with his brother over the wooden duck. Um, and he, um, uh, refuses to accept a ride uh, from his brother makes him pull the car over and makes not just insists on walking home himself, but insists on Gustav walking home with him uh, for, I think it's eight kilometers. How, how is, far is eight kilometers? I don't, I don't speak metric. It's, it's about five miles, four and a half miles. Um, so it's a good long walk for a seven year old. And, um, and, it's also a, um, uh, you know, his his brother has just taken care of his kid for three months, four months while he's been in prison and he doesn't, you know, bother to say thank you or express any kind of uh, familial gratitude. So it's, it's an ugly set of moments for Marcel. Uh, and then it is like a little bit redeemed only by the fact that he's kind of capable of, you know, uh, understanding that entrusting a seven-year-old with that kind of a secret is dumb or in this case uh, inevitable, but is not the seven-year-old's fault when the seven-year-old can't keep the secret. 
I'm just gonna do you are you sure he's seven I don't I think he might be nine like I'm not positive I actually I should know this but um I can't I felt like for some reason I felt like in this episode somebody said the age nine um but I'm just not positive I wanted to say I mean he doesn't look like a nine-year-old he doesn't Um, he doesn't and I don't know why the number seven was in my head but as we know from uh, my ability to age portents, <laughs> uh, figuring out how old people are from what they look like is not my forte. Okay, we'll just stipulate we're not positive about Gustav's age. But um, it, going back to this, these ugly moments, I, I, I want to just, because I think it's, it's so much of it's about the dynamic between the two brothers. But Marcel gets out of jail, and um, and now we're kind of actually deep into the second episode, but so he gets out of jail one of the first things he says, he gives Gustav a great hug and it's nice. You know, Gustav kind of asks Daniel, can I go now? And he runs to his dad. And one of the first things that Marcel says to him is like, you've put on weight. Um, and uh, and and you can feel in the comment, it is a, it is a comment about class, right? His son yes. has been with Daniel for, uh, Daniel and Hortense for three months and he is eating well. Um, he has been sort of taken care of. It is clear that there is a big difference. So Marcel lives a kind of principled life of scarcity, and Daniel lives a sort of morally neutral, in the political sense, life of, um, you know, he's a he's a doctor. He's you know he so he has real money. You can just tell from how big his house is the fact that they have meat and food um, and servants and servants, right? Yeah, so this is, um, again, there's a, a significant political dimension of this. Um, Danielle is, you know, classic in the Marxist sense bourgeois, right? He's a, he's a small businessman, uh, uh, a doctor. He is, uh, um, he's a, uh, um, he's living a, a, you know, an, a sort of upper middle class lifestyle. He is uh, very respectable. He's invested in the system to the point that he does sort of public service stuff like being the mayor. Uh, and he is, um, you know, living in a way that up until the late 18th century was kind of reserved for noblemen, right? This sort of emergent middle class that, you know, kind of, or upper middle class that does the French Revolution is the, you know, this is what the Marxists regarded as the bourgeois revolution, right? And so, you know, uh, having sort of upper middle class non-nobles who were economically the you know big drivers of the economy, very invested in the system, um, and then um, his brother is self-consciously proletarian, works in the in the sawmill, uh, he's a wage laborer, um, and of course uh, this is it's not clear what the history of this is whether his. Marxism derives from his proletarian labor or whether his proletarian labor is an ideological expression of his Marxism, but he is much poorer. Um, uh, He lives in a sort of two-room, it's not clear if it's a house or an apartment. He is, uh, 
the other comment that he makes to Gustave when he sees him, not just you've put on weight, but what's he dressing you in, right? He's, yeah, you're dressed he, funny. <laughs> you're dressed funny. He's not, you know, he's wearing uh, uh, more classy clothes. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of the tension between the brothers is organized around class. And there's a, you know, there is a party expression of this. We don't really know what party uh, Gustave, uh, uh, Danielle is affiliated with, but he is certainly not a Marxist. He's not a socialist. Um, he's probably historically affiliated with either one of the conservative parties or more likely in the villages of France, the sort of the, the, um, the party that was uh, that represented sort of bourgeois interests in uh, in the French countryside was called the Radical Party. Um, uh, it was not radical in character. <laughs> um, and um, so, you know, but they're quite like they're quite politically different and in a way that is, you know, uh, very European and particularly very French in that period. Those uh, political differences express as class differences. Yeah, and I'll just then there's sort of the the more um, sort of per, it is both political, but it's also a personality difference. Where um, it's funny you you called it an ugly scene. I, I'm not entirely sure I would interpret it quite the same way. In that, but I'm interested in what you think about this. There there's the moment where Gustave shows Marcel this duck, and the duck has another boy's name carved in it, and Marcel says to Gustave, this belonged to a boy where no one knows because because Gustave is, is is explaining to him the explaining to his dad the way it's been explained to him, which is that like which is a very sort of nice hey Santa Claus is is a is a, is real kind of thing where oh well you know you they sold the toys so the money could go to his his mother and to Roland and and Marcel in a in a true way. But in a sort of a cruel way, says that is not what happened. Like this person's been, this kid's been driven from his home. They are getting none of this money. Like that is, uh, that is not true. And like gives him like kind of the hard, hard truth him a, of life. A, gives him the range of choices about who Roland could be. That's you know, right. He could be a Jewish kid. He could be the kid of communists whose parents have been rounded up. I mean, I think it's pretty heartless, actually. You know, uh, whoever whatever the truth may be, and of course, Marcel is almost certainly right about who Roland is, um, it is putting that on a seven-year-old who gets taken to a fair and given a duck is uh, pretty unreasonable. <laughs> and, um, and I think there are, you know, there are ways to tell a seven-year-old hey, uh, you've been sold a bill of goods and you're dealing in blood money here. But angrily, the day you get out of prison, um, when your son is happy to see you, not the best way to do it. Just, I, I, I don't know, I don't, you know, this isn't a, par a French village parenting podcast, <laughs> but I, I would just say that's probably not best practices. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I just think that the inherent in, in Marcel's character is the tension between 
being kind of a radical truth teller ideologue committed to his politics above all else contrasted with uh marcel the dad um where this is a relationship that we that we see um and become sort of attached to and like the way that you you are not the first person to tell me that gustav is a favorite character of yours and as a result right gustav especially from the first episode where we see him run away and he is a lost child we fear for gustav right throughout what we've seen so far and we are we are uh, acutely aware of his safety and can feel happier to see him with Daniel um, and being fed well and having two people taking care of him. At the same time, while I agree it could have been delivered differently, there is a moral clarity to Marcel uh, and the fact that he won't let... I mean, it could have... There's definitely a different way to say it, but I don't think it's necessarily wrong to in this moment be explaining to kids in some way that is age appropriate that what is going on is wrong and not to just kind of drift through. I'm not a positive. I wouldn't like die on this hill, but I, I, I definitely had a tinge of that watching it. I don't know. I, I don't want to make the argument for complicity. That's not the point of this podcast, <laughs> but I do want to say that the burden of staring reality in the face belongs with the grown-ups here, not with the small children. This kid has <laughs> suffered uh, more than anybody else in the entire show so far. So let's let's review the bidding. In the first couple scenes of the show, he uh, watches a plane strafe his classmates and kill some of his friends, and then he gets lost and found eventually several days later by a uh, creepy uh, 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 soldier character who kind of unclear what that guy wants from him, um, but it's nothing good. Um, uh, then uh, his mother dies, and then his father gets taken away to prison. So, I mean, like, we've had a year. The, the, the show has, uh, or sorry, a, a sort of six-month uh, lapse time over the course of the show so far. And uh, nobody in none of the major characters have been through more than poor Gustav. I think like, like shielding him a little bit from the truth, from the full weight of the truth, <laughs> wouldn't be the biggest moral crime that's taken place so far. Uh, all right. I mean, that's, that's fair enough. That's a, it's a, it's a, it's a legitimate position. And I will say, uh, just to wrap up Gustav and then so we can move on to some other things. But uh, it was it was delightful to see him find a rabbit. So so his dad sees a rabbit at the very end of the second episode and, you know, wants to get him for lunch because it's not clear there's food at home. Um, and uh, instead, Marcel asks if he can keep him and, and he'll be his friend. And he names him Captain Carrots. Uh, and I would just like to say long live Captain Carrots. May you... May you be Mars Gustav's longtime friend. I just hope it is, and that Captain Carrots isn't, after all, uh, dinner a few days later. Yeah, well, we'll wait and see on that. So I want to just jump back into the action of the first episode, because there are a couple big things that are happening. These episodes are a little plotty, uh, so there's a lot of, there's some new characters introduced that are really important. Um, at the very, um, so so in, in episode one, yes, we start out in the whorehouse, um, and, uh, sort of improbably, 
DeCurvin and his good friend, who we've never met before, have won the lottery, uh, like the national lottery. Um, and it sounds like it's about 75,000 francs, which uh, I don't know each. what the... Each. Yeah, it's 150 total. And it's unclear how they've both won it. I guess they both picked the same number or something. Well, no, I think I think it sounds like they had one ticket that they went in on together. Because they're because they're going because what happens, so I'll just give you the quick quick on the plot, which is so they're in the whorehouse celebrating. DeCurvin's friend uh you know has goes back into a room with a prostitute. Uh DeCurvin's gonna stay out and drink, um, presumably because he is in a healthy relationship with uh Mrs. Morhange at this point. Um but pretty soon there's screams and one of the prostitutes comes out to say that the guy's not moving and he's died. Um, and, you know, DeCurvin, after he sort of gets over the shock of his friend, immediately starts being like, where's this lottery ticket? And there is, you know, I think he is, he's in this space of, you know, did this prostitute steal our lottery ticket from us? And like, where's his wallet? And it leads to uh, a quite a harrowing scene of DeCurvin, who we, I, who I, I would say up until this point, we have seen behave as one of our, on our scale of, of decency, has been one of the more admirable characters on the show, uh, immediately resort to both uh, horrible name-calling of the prostitutes, calls her a whore and, and liar, and like shortly thereafter brings her to the, the, the station to question her where he hits her repeatedly. Um, and uh, and so I was I was interested in your thoughts on and, and it's not the only instance I would say. There's there's obviously the treatment of women through this show that is a function both of the time period and in the different class structures um, is something that, like, is very clear throughout the show. Um, but in this instance, you know, one of our kind of good guys is behaving, I would say, um, abominably. Uh, but how did that, s- I don't want to say strike you, but how did that, what did you think about that? Um. So, first of all... Um... I think there's two abominable elements of this that merge kind of seamlessly here. One is the just baseline interrogation tactics that the police use routinely in this show. I'm sure it's reasonably accurate, uh, although I don't know anything about, you know, French police procedure at the time. Uh, The idea that you would slap kick or punch uh, somebody that you are in the course of arresting or interrogating is so routine throughout this show. Uh, We see it later when uh, Marchetti is arresting this person who it turns out is a German uh, Gestapo uh, agent, uh, and he kicks him in the ribs repeatedly. you know, and so there's a, a, a sort of just baseline uh, physical brutality that is uh, just accepted as normal as police behavior um, that is, uh, you know, very alien um, while, of course, it still happens. And we have our uh, George Floyd and uh, similar uh, incidents um you know, we kind of uh, make a point of recoiling at it, right? And it's it's a it's something that we at least don't at, at least purport not to accept. And here, 
it is so accepted that it is just kind of unremarked upon. You know, you have a a woman who is not telling you what you want, so you hit her repeatedly. Uh, the second aspect of this, as you describe, is the is the you know the class uh, or, or the behavior toward her as a sex worker, and um, uh, and there is a you know a, a frankness about the um, first of all the acceptability of men of distinction and rank going to this brothel um and secondly of abusing the women there um and that is portrayed again without comment and without you know without sort of drawing attention to it and look how horrible this is I, I again I don't know anything about the social history of you know sort of the status of prostitutes in in uh in this period but I'm sure that's not inaccurate. Um yeah so so two things two things uh that I noticed through this. So one is um I also don't know anything about this history exactly but just just through TV and film over time I would say that I could there's a recognizable dynamic of men in like can I say whorehouses? Is that like a is that a is that an acceptable term? Do I have to say sex worker houses? Like I don't I think, really know. But... I think the neutral term is brothel. Brothel. Okay, so like you, but the, you've just seen whether it's on whether it's on like shows about Romans or you know Game of Thrones. I like you just you've seen this all the time, and I think that there is a recognizable dynamic of men with the women where they treat these women uh, in the sexual context quite. Uh, kindly and, you know, as, as, but, but like, whatever, but they're nice to them in that context. But the second that like, it comes out of sexual games into a reality of any kind, they treat the uh, sex workers with total brutality. Like he, DeCurvin, you see him having the drink, they're celebrating, and he's being really nice to the women to clear that they know each other and have a rapport. The second like the outside life creeps in and it's like a, it's not they're not living in that reality the cruelty and the dismissiveness and the way that these are not actually people to uh to Kervin, who we've seen treat plenty of other people that i think he views as more like three-dimensional and real like mrs morange whatever quite compassionately but but these are just whores to him and so he can scream and yell at them and doesn't care until he realizes that she's a patriot and a spy at which point his treatment of her turns on a dime and he becomes solicitous and careful of her. Yes. But let me just, the second thing that I want to mention about the brothel, because it's, it's important and strikes me again as something that you could see as a, as a way that, that brothels are used as a plot device in all kinds of shows and probably in reality there's a reason is that this is true, which is that it becomes clear the Germans also visit this brothel, right? So like it becomes this one of the few places these prostitutes see everything. They see the German soldiers uh, and they see uh, the French villagers who they've known for a long time. But like when you hear the women kind of pushing back against, uh, let's say, Marchetti or something like that, they will say things like, I am name your German officer's favorite. 
um, as a way of sort of protecting themselves because those people have power. Um, but also they pick up all the ephemeral chatter from the Germans. Like this is where inf more information is exchanged uh, in kind of the, the pillow talk uh, and it becomes uh, an epicenter or you can tell that it is an epicenter of information um, and you can see why a lot of sort of uh, plot action is set there. Yeah. Um, and again, to what extent that is realistic and to what extent it's a, um, you know, Mata Hari, the famous World War One spy, uh, was, of course, a, a courtesan of some sort. And so whether to what extent that's kind of the expression of a legend of the, uh, you know, everybody's guard is down with within the brothel uh i don't know um but uh it certainly is true that um you know german officers um uh took a lot of sexual license in france um and and in other countries that they occupied um and there must have been um, significant, uh, you know, uh, institutions that cultivated that. It wasn't all, you know, uh, back alley kind of stuff. Yeah, well, what, what's interesting, and I said one of the, the plot points um, that, that spans these two episodes is the, um, the Kurt, the German soldier, and Lucien... Uh, you know, getting to know each other a little bit, putting each other in one another's way um, to have contact. But you also find out, and I remember sort of learning this from this episode the first time around and, and not having it be like, oh, that makes sense, I guess, um, which is that when you, Kurt and Lucien are, are walking at some point, he has helped her uh, pass her violin. They are both violinists. This is a thing that they have in common. He's helped her pass her violin over the line so that it can be repaired. Um, and he's walking her back to the village and uh, they encounter uh, Lorraine, incidentally, Marie's husband, ne'er-do-well husband, uh, doing a black market operation, uh, exchange of an animal of some kind for food. Um, and while Kurt is in a position of power having caught uh, Lorraine in an illegal act, it's clear there's an awareness that Lorraine also has caught Kurt in an illegal act. And it is when you first, I think, realize, if you don't have the historical context, that the the relationship between German soldiers and French women are is very much verboten. Um, and, so and, to speak. So to speak. Um, and... Uh, is is actually something that Kurt would be extremely concerned about getting back to anybody. And I think Lucien would be concerned about too. So there's this is the first time the the joke about the word collaboration shows up. Um because um but it shows up later as well when Lucien and Kurt and uh the uh, new principal of the school, whose name I can't remember, are fixing... Beria. The, Beria. Are fixing the boiler. Beriot, I think. I don't know because I pronounced it Beriot last time and somebody wrote 
somebody mentioned it on Twitter and said Mont Dieu in response. So clearly I'm pronouncing it wrong. Yeah, and uh, just so, Barriott. Well, I think somebody was uh, confused because Beria is uh, at this time Stalin's uh, uh, chief of murdering people. Um, and I think it's Beriot, but I'm not sure. Anyway, he there, and then they pour a drink and they toast to collaboration. Um, and so I think, um, you know, there's clearly a lot of confusion about what the, what the relationship that you're supposed to have between as a French civilian with, you know, Germans who are suddenly living among you have the power to shoot you. Um, and, but also sometimes on an individual basis are friendly. And I mean, Kurt seems like a nice guy. Um, and he, he plays some good violin and, you know, he's clearly got a thing for Lucien, who's clearly got a thing for him. And the question, you know, and this question plays out um, which is, of course, a metaphor for the whole Vichy um, predicament, right? What are you supposed to do with these Germans who are here? And, you know, the um, so one of the books that I've been reading describes uh, a relationship between um, the idea of collaboration, which at some level is contemplated in the armistice itself, right? which requires uh, uh, the French to, you know, cooperate and I think actually uses the word collaboration. So France had kind of, by the nature of the armistice, uh, like uh, ob obligated itself to a certain degree of occupation and collaboration with the occupation. And the book, uh, this is Julian Jackson's history, uh, distinguishes between collaboration, which was just kind of the baseline necessity of life, and collaborationism, which some of the French uh, fascists really, you know, wanted to join the kind of Axis powers and become a, a kind of, uh, you know, uh, they didn't imagine themselves as a client state, but really ally themselves with the Germans. And so I think what you're seeing here is a certain confusion in the early stages of the occupation. Like, what are they supposed to be doing? Are you supposed to, you know, just kind of minimally cooperate with in order to make life run? Are you supposed to be playing string quartets with with the enemy? Are you supposed to be fixing boilers together and maybe the German will get you the part that you need, which is what Barriott does to fix the boiler? Are you supposed to be uh, doing black market deals with the enemy? Are you supposed to be dating the enemy? And all of these are kind of open questions uh, to different characters. Um, and I think reflects the actual confusion of the nature of occupation. Yes. Uh, I'm just going to flag one more romance plot point uh, while we're on it. So we can, because I really want to get into De Cavern and the, the, um, the spy operation he's beginning. Uh, but that is that, that Daniel 
is starting to get wise to the fact that Marchetti seems to have some kind of romantic designs on Hortense. Uh, it is clear that things with Hortense and Daniel, you know, he is he is somebody who is sort of consumed by what is happening, the suffering that he is seeing. He feels it acutely. He's seeing it. Hortense tends to take a rather more um, detached view. Um, it is not not impacting her psyche uh, whatsoever, but she is not getting the love and attention that she feels like she needs from Daniel. And so you can see her and Marchetti getting closer, but Daniel's aware of it too. And he basically kicks Marchetti out in a, in a, in a nice way without, you know, attaching it to anything particular, but has says, yeah, it's, I, I found you an apartment, pal. <laughs> um, time for you to roll out. Um, and, uh, but we do see in the second episode, uh, well, let's see. How do I want to set this up? Because he's brought there by a plot point. So wait. So let's so let's put a pin in that. Uh, and we're going to go. Let's start talking about. So Dee Caverne, we has this terrible. Uh, he's this terrible instance where he beats up uh, this prostitute in order to get information from her. And what he finds out is that his friend was actually part of. Uh, I'm not sure if he calls it. the He calls it the resistance to Mrs. Morehange. Um, who says, what is even the resistance? Uh, which is an indication of kind of how early this part, this, this, this was starting to happen. Obviously the resistance becomes a big part of things, but this is, it's interesting to me just to hear her say, what does that even mean? Um, so, so his, his friend who has died when he just, he, he realizes what's going on. The reason he was with this prostitute actually was, um, yes, he was, sounds like he was, uh, uh, having sex with her, but more importantly, they were engaged in an information sharing, um, yeah, spy operation to sort of move information along. And DeCurvin, once he finds this out. I think sort of rather quickly. It's sort of like surprising how quickly he kind of like both figures out what's going on and then moves directly into a phase of I will pick this mantle up and and go with it. Um, but what did you make of this? Okay, so there are a few really interesting things about this. One is the, yes, there is a confusion about what the resistance is because what uh, Madame Morhange, or Mrs. Morhange says to him is, uh, Hey, the war's over. What what are you doing? And he's like, maybe, you know, and this is the first indication that he doesn't really understand the war to be over. And they he understands de Gaulle's name is not spoken, but the word London is spoken and London means de Gaulle, uh, that there is some alternative power source in French politics and funneling information to it is a way of continuing the war um, and a way of, uh, and the word they use on this starts to be resistance. And I think that's a pretty neat uh, piece of writing, actually. Just, you know, they're not using resistance in this sense of capital T, capital are the resistance, right? They're just saying, hey, can we engage in some resistance here, get some information to De Gaulle? Um, the second thing that's interesting um, about it to me is that I think it's pretty clear between the previous episode that we talked about last week and this sequence of episodes that De Cavernin has... Uh, some kind of intelligence background from the first world, from the first world, previous world war 
this is not stated, but it's he dives right into organizing this network. And when and this follows when he uh, hears about uh, Marcel and Suzanne's efforts to distribute flyers, he dismisses them as amateurs, right? They're, go- they're amateurs and they're going to get caught really quickly. And he kind of tries to protect them, but he doesn't think he's going to be able to because they're so bad at it. And then you see in this pair of episodes, he is not an amateur. He recruits Marie, who, uh, to, and he does it because he sees her uh, act very coolly in a circumstance in which somebody gets killed. Um, he compartmentalizes information very carefully, so she doesn't really know what she's doing, but she knows enough to know that it's very dangerous and that she's taking risks. Um, uh, he's very expertly putting together an intelligence network. And I, so I think the subtle implication here is that he and his old friend Albert, who dies in the brothel, were intelligence officers in the previous war. And they, uh, uh, and Albert is starting to create an intelligence network, dies, and, uh, he, takes it over. I think that's the implication. It's never stated. Um, But he's clearly a pro and he knows what he's doing. Um, And it's a, uh, um, and the, the network that he's creating is quite well thought through. Um, He's really thinking about every piece of the chain in a way that is very expert. You know, I like your explanation because it 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 covers for me being like uh, for for maybe a slight criticism that I would have, which is of the show, which I was kind of like, why is he just jumping into this? Like he knows all of this stuff because you do see these scenes where like he is about to go do the first delivery and he's watching the different people outside and you can tell he's clocking who's right and who who's who's off and who's on and like he knows enough to keep walking. And, like, is sensing then that the person's about to get shot and get caught. And so when he runs into the cafe and just sits down at a table with Marie, immediately the cops come in and start questioning people. The German police come in and start questioning people. And he looks at Marie in this way and and offers some things up where she she engages in a lie with him to protect the stranger who has just sat down at the table. She has no idea what's going on. Um, I'm glad that Gustav is your favorite character. Marie is 100% my favorite character um, on this show. And this is like one of these early instances where I remember being like, oh, you're so good. Like she just, uh, she just, she rolls with it. Um, She makes a quick calculation on character, which I think is a strength of hers, uh, which we might be, we could, we could discuss Schwartz on that a little bit, but, um, but that can be left for later. Uh, Anyway, so, so yes, uh, Dick Cavern uh, recruits her and uh, pretty soon they're like running an operation together. Um, But, I want to tell you that the cop, the German cop who walks into the cafe is Heinrich. And Heinrich is an important character, and it is the first time we meet him. And I had forgotten that this is how we first meet him. Um, and then he is, he is, we, so we see him briefly. We have a, he has a conversation. He makes it clear that he has every right to be out questioning people, has an exchange with, uh, 
I, I'm going to keep pronouncing his name differently every time. What is it? DeCavern? DeCavern? DeCavern. I, 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 I don't know. I, I'm going to have to. I'm going to talk about this guy a lot, so I need to learn how to say it. But he has an exchange with DeCavern. I, I still don't understand what his name is, whether it's a whether it's a French name or a Dutch name. I, I'm very confused. About... Lots of people wrote in with varying theories about yeah. why this is, but I'm no very confused about his ethnic identity. He's clearly French, but he's uh, but there's something that doesn't make sense to me about his name. Yeah, but so they had this great kind of uh, little exchange where both is trying to assert uh, a certain amount of authority to the other, um, uh, though uh, though Dickavern is certainly nervous uh, at this. But 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 Heinrich, uh, it's just a very short scene. But then in the next episode, what kicks off the action is this sting that Marchetti is running. Uh, that they think is going to be career making. He's got the deputy prefect there with him. They are going to go bust some some uh, black market dealers, and it's going to be great for everyone's career. They they have they talk about that, uh, and when Marchetti starts grabs the person who um, they're trying to catch uh, and repeatedly kicks him in the ribs, as you note, it turns out that it is none other than Heinrich, uh, the German officer that we saw uh, in the cafe that day. And uh, he is not the least bit pleased. So this is one of these instances where the French police are trying to run their own operation. And the German, the Germans are trying to run an operation to catch black. And so they had clearly, he says, you ruined three weeks of work, meaning that they had had sort of an intelligence operation about this black market. Um, and they were trying to do a sting and when um, they get crosswise and he is, he is mad and Marchetti and, and Heinrich seemed to agree that Marchetti's career is about to be over uh, as a result of this. Yeah, so there's a, uh, uh, there are a few things about this that I love. Uh, the first is that, you know, the portrayal of the Gestapo guy is that he's both ferociously committed, right? He's got a huge picture of Hitler in his office. He's... You know, he's got Nazi uh, drapery in a way that the Wehrmacht guys don't have. Um, and that is, uh, you know, a reflection of the fact that these were the, the party faithful. The second is that he's uh, corrupt. Um, he's both ideologically committed and he's clearly trading on the black market. Um, he's you know, visiting the prostitutes and bringing them uh, uh, cool uh, furs and stuff. Um, they're all terrified of him. Um, but he's not just investigating the black market. He's he's kind of into it. You know what? I sort of missed that. Is that is that is that the case that he was he it wasn't actually a sting on his part. He just used that as a ruse because he got caught participating in the black market. I it's not clear. It's clear that he's not just doing a sting because he's, after all, um, uh, ends up with furs that he's giving to the prostitutes, right? And so he's, um, uh, what exactly he's doing, but he's not above the luxury items himself. And then the final element is um, uh, that he's a morphine addict. Um, and this is also super realistic. It is a um, a lesser 
an aspect of the Nazi hierarchy that was pretty unstudied until relatively recently, but it's the subject of a pretty amazing book called Blitzed, which is a book about the drug addictions of the Nazi uh, high command and just how hopped up they were all the time. Um, and, um, and, you know, I think the explanation for it is that they were people who were doing unspeakable things all the time and, you know, cleansing your mind of it uh, was a good, you know, pharmaceuticals are one way to do that. But the, is that what morphine's for, though? Like, isn't morphine a painkiller? Uh, it all all narcotics make you care less about pain mm -hmm. um, and other things. They make you okay with whatever, you know. And so this is a guy who ends up in an extortion relationship with Marchetti the first time they meet in his office and he's shooting up while he's doing it. And he basically tells Marchetti he's kind of on to the idea that there is a, a espionage ring forming in, uh, um, in, in the town. And he, neither of them, of course, know that De Caverne is behind it or involved in it. And De Caverne is Marchetti's partner. Um, but he basically tells Marchetti, if you help me with this, I'll make the fact that you kicked me in the ribs go away. Otherwise, your career ends. Uh, you know, that is uh, let the kind of leverage that the occupying authority gets in in situations like this. And um, so I, I think it's a it's a really neat introduction to the first true Nazi that like, you know, every, every other German soldier, every Ger German we've met is either a conscript into the army or, a, you know, an officer in the army. Um, it's not clear that any of them is a committed Nazi. Uh, this guy's a committed Nazi and, um, and the portrayal of him as, you know, corrupt, drug addicted, ideologically committed, and extortionate, uh, all within one scene is, I think, quite beautifully done. Yeah. So do you think uh, good guy, bad guy long term? Um, the Nazi? Yeah. Uh, well, you, I think all Nazis start with a presumption of bad guy. <laughs> We've certainly seen no evidence to, uh, to suggest that he, he's going to emerge on the side of the angels. Yeah, I think that's probably just, just wanted to get your, just wanted you to lay your mark, mark down early before you'd seen anything yeah, else. That's a tough one. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. Um, so, but the, the, one of the, the, this is where I had stopped before, but, but this particular piece of action kicks off the Marchetti looking for some kind of leverage on this guy to save his job. And so he figures out that uh, Daniel has been treating Heinrich. And so he goes uh, to see Hortense when he knows that Daniel's out and uh, asks to get into Daniel's office, which she first at first refuses. And then after he begs a little bit, uh, she lets him and he goes... And then they have sex, too. 
Well, I was, I was, I wasn't there yet. Yeah. Um, that he, but he, so he does, he does this thing where he goes through, she lets him go through Daniel's like prescription book where he figures out that Daniel is prescribing, uh, Heinrich morphine, uh, which he then can use as leverage. And, uh, then after some very uncomfortably close talking, uh, yeah, they, they, they finally, um, they finally start making out uh, after we've seen we've seen them looking at each other, ready to like you know eat each other's faces for a while, and this then they, they do. finally do it. Yeah. Yep. So here's uh, in the true French fashion, this show so far is remarkably morally neutral about adultery. You know, in the case of Lorraine and um, uh, and Marie. Uh, Marie's affair is regarded as the only reasonable uh, response to having a husband like that. Um, and uh, the only question the audience is left to ask is whether she might have chosen better than Schwartz in her in her cho- choice of lover. Um, but there's no, the show certainly doesn't have a negative attitude toward um, toward, you know, her decision that having married a nebbish like that, she should cheat on him. Um, With respect to Hortense, she is emerging as an extremely unlikable character. And um, the, um, the fact that she's, you know, stealing a baby, um, getting, you know, lying to her husband about it to try to get, uh, you know, keep the baby recruiting the cop who's kind of got serious authoritarian tendencies to help her lie and help her keep the baby and then having an affair with the cop, you know, uh, uh, you're kind of left pretty sympathetic to Larche when uh, Danielle, um, uh, you know, hires a private eye to keep an eye on her at the end of the episode. Uh, I mean, I'm not wild about this, uh, the, the Daniel hiring the private eye. Um, I think that, uh, through the course of these two episodes, you see a lot of things happen to women, uh, that are like overtly bad, like being, you know, screamed at and, and slapped around, uh, as is done in the brothel, but also, you know, Lucienne, very young, uh, very young woman here. Uh, you know, is, is, is like in this Kurt soldier guy, uh, but is also realizes in, in, uh, be, there's a, there's this scene where she, there's blocks, uh, that have been spelled out in, um, I think about you, it says, um, and she thinks that it's Kurt who has left her those blocks, um, as he's practicing his French, uh, because they have like letters on them, like kids blocks. And then, uh, turns out that it is her boss, uh, that is now, and, and, and it's funny the way it is presented again without any judgment, uh, because by all accounts, this Bariat fellow seems like quite a nice guy and, um, is always, you know, is making the kids laugh and you see him as, as this very sweet character on the flip side. It doesn't, no one seems to consider the fact that like her boss, the principal, um, you know, putting her in the position of coming out and telling her how he feels about her. Um, might not be slightly unprofessional and put her in a bit of a tough spot. Yeah, I I think the frank portrayal of what, you know, uh, would not be considered an appropriate work environment in 
this country at this time, but nonetheless happens all the time. Uh, it's done in an understated sort of way, and it puts her in a very difficult position because she thinks the block spelling is being done by Kurt and reciprocates by writing Moisi on a piece of paper and slipping it into his pocket, um, uh, thinking that she's saying, I'm, I also think about you. And then he finds the piece of paper and is quite confused because why would a random uh, person in a school slip a piece of paper uh, into your pocket that says, I also... Um, oh, nope. It says the, tr the literal translation on the show was me too. And I just can't resist. I can't resist the fact. And obviously this was made in 2007. The idea that it, me too was the, the essence of this whole thing where she is both being uh, approached by her boss or whatever, but also then slips me too in the pocket yes. of the guy she really wants to date. Just seemed like a funny play on words. It, to me. It, it's a, uh, it is a funny play of words on words, it's also a coincidence. It's a coincidence. No, I know. <laughs> no, totally a storm, totally a coincidence, right. And, you know, um, there has been in the last few years a very serious conversation, and this I have not followed it closely at all, in France about, you know, uh, among women who have really said, um, you know, the culture of... Uh, French men hitting on women in workplace and non-workplace settings uh, and thinking it's charming is, you know, qualitatively different from, from you know, other countries and, you know, has got to stop. And uh, it's a kind of version of the Me Too movement, but it's a, it's a, uh, you know, in a particular French context, um, you know, I, I think it's, you know, completely uh, uh, plausible that, you know, Lucienne is young and beautiful and completely on her own. She is, um, she is, presumably not from around there. She's assigned to this village school. It's not clear to me where she's from, but, you know, the French bureaucracy and its wisdom decides, all right, let's put her under um, this woman, Morhange. Then it fires Morhange because she's a Jew and installs some uh, sweet-natured but lecherous uh, older guy in Morhange's place. And so, you know, what's the, you know, she's attracted to the young, uh, age appropriate uh, German soldier, and he's, uh, you know, rubbing his uh, paws together like a fly about her. And I, I um, and that is not a healthy workplace environment, which granted in the context of uh, you know, occupied France, maybe workplace sexual dynamics are not the most important thing. They're not. Thing. And, and I would say, I would just say, like, I think lecherous, I, I, I probably, uh, I probably wouldn't go that far. I have a real soft spot for this guy. Uh, uh, so I, I, I clocked it as this, you know, from her position, this isn't fair and it's not good. I also feel like I'll just say in, in slight defense of him, like he handled the rejection. Like he took it as a, I have been rejected. I will, 
I will go nurse my wounds in shame here yes. um, and not a, oh, I will now leverage my power over you in some way. Um, you although, know, so... although you have the benefit of knowing how he behaves toward her in future episodes, whereas I do not. And when I saw that, I was like, okay, this relationship is going to work out really badly for her. <laughs> um, and so if you tell me that over the next few episodes... Well, I don't want to tell you anything. He does I am, not... I am you know, make further advances at her, the, the one that then I don't disagree with your characterization of it. He did handle the rejection very well. I'm going to contain it to the episode or just the way that he responded in that moment. But it, it does sound like I might implicitly be giving something away. I'm trying not to do that. But um, any in any event, in any event, um, my point, I would just say broadly, we could talk about this. Uh, we can kind of close with this, but I will say I want to talk about it certainly as the um, as the whole series goes on. Um, I have a little bit, and I, I don't know if I'm, I don't, I, I have a little bit of a bone to pick on the female characters, uh, which is to say that, um, just as a broad critique of the show and, um, some of it starts in these moments where, uh, as you, as you note, um, you get somebody like Hortense, who you see her in the early episodes, the baby stealing doesn't look like baby stealing at first, right? It looks like compassionate and like she's, you know, helping this child and taking in someone else's baby who can't take, you know, it's like she does not start the, and she's helping in the hospital and she seems to be, you know, taking people's health seriously and uh, seems like a good companion to Daniel, if not to me inappropriately young, um, but yes, as the show, as the, as, as is progr her, her arc is progressing into this eighth episode, the depiction of her is shifting considerably, uh, or, or, or not necessarily shifting so much as the more, the more, uh, insight we get on her, the less likable she is. Um, and I would sort of say with Lucienne as well, um, I think we have sympathy for her to some degree in terms of her youth, but like, you know, she's she's sort of so far we've seen her make a series of very not good choices. Um, I mean, uh, whether it's taking the children on the initial picnic, the way that she seems slightly more concerned about her own job than the fact that these kids have died. Um, we haven't seen a ton of psychological fallout um, for her subsequently about the deaths of these children. Uh, and uh, and now, you know, the German soldier thing. That might not be a great idea either. Um, She's so, not very bright. Yeah, I think that is how she comes off. It's not very bright. Like, pretty and sweet-natured and uh, harmless in intent, but not very bright. That's right. And then we've got Schwartz's wife. We'd see, um, this is actually something about the show that's interesting, is the way that whole characters just, dis like, they'll just, it's not like an American show where they make sure you kind of have a plot arc for every character right. and every Schwartz episode. Schwartz and his wife are just gone from these They're just gone for, for, you don't see them at all. But, like, his wife is obviously um, a pretty despicable character, um, as we've seen. And so... On the uh, other hand, Suzanne is portrayed as almost wholly, I, I mean, exemplary in all respects so far. She hasn't been a major character, but we kind of expect to hear more from her. And Marie, your, your fave, is super interesting and compelling. And uh, as long as you don't mind her uh, having an affair with Schwartz, either for choice of Schwartz reasons or because... 
uh, or because, you know fidelity reasons. Uh, her there's there's nothing objectionable about her. Yeah, I do not, and I don't object to her affair. Um, her uh, well, I I mean I object morally to affairs in general. Uh, but you know, as a in terms of the character, like. That husband of hers seems like you're just really like, what was this dude like before the war? And she because thought he, he was dead. Yeah, she did I mean, think he was, and she thought he was. Well, she she thought he was gone. Then she thought he was dead. She started the affair when she just thought he was away. Um, but still, out of sight, uh, out of mind, man. <laughs> okay, well, with that, I think we can leave it. We can leave it there until next week when we will do episodes nine and ten. Thank you, Ben. Take us home, Edith. Nous nous aimions bien tendrement. Homme t'aime tous les amants. Et puis un jour, tu m'as quitté.